Uh, if you can, turn with me this morning to God's Word. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 is where we will be. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. If you are able to stand, would you do so as we read God's Word together? 2 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning in verse 9. For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end, but their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that some veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Amen? And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. Father God, your word is so true, and we take encouragement from your comfort and your promise and your boldness that you, dear God, will lift the veil of cloud in front of our eyes so that we will see you clearly as you, dear God, inhabit your people. And dear God, you promised this from the very beginning of humanity. In Genesis chapter 3, you promised, Lord, a covenant that you would send a Redeemer to restore humanity's place and you would crush the head of the serpent so that we would be in your presence. And so, God, I pray this morning that you would honor this covenant that you have made with us through your Son, Jesus Christ. Dear God, that you would be in this room with us and that you would lift the veil that may be blinding our hearts from receiving you. Give us the freedom, dear God, that your covenant through Christ guarantees. Teach us this morning, God, what it means to be free in Christ. Teach us, dear God, to love you and to receive your presence. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Have a seat. Have a seat. It is 4th of July weekend. I know it was Thursday. The 4th of July was actually Thursday, but as good Americans, we take advantage of any holiday that we can to get a long weekend out of it. And so that's our right as Americans, and that's our tradition. Amen? And so this is what we do this time of year. Uh, We remember the liberty and the freedom that we have in this country. But in doing so, I want us to think about this, that sometimes in doing that, and, and we do have every right to remember our liberty in this country, to worship 
to live, to prosper, to be who we are as Americans. And, and I am still convinced that God, in His providence, has ordained this country to be who it is. Even though some may disagree with that now. But let's not forget and not confuse liberty of government with liberty of the faith. And I think that's where sometimes we can become very confused in this passage, particularly in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Because we do read, now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And if we're not careful, we're going to impose upon this text freedom of government and freedom of my will over the freedom of, from sin that God guarantees in the new covenant with Christ. Amen. Two different things here. Freedom is important. I'm, I'm, trust me, how many, I don't think there's a person in this room that enjoys being told what to do. How many people enjoy that? Right? We, we inherently, we, we have this innate sense within us as human beings to be free, to be liberated, to think the way that we should think or want to think. But with that also, we, should all, we have consequences to that. But at the same time, the, the free will of the, of the human soul is not the same freedom that Paul is talking about here in this passage. Just because Jesus Christ fulfilled the promises of God does not mean that we have the liberty to think and do whatever we wish to do. Here's what Paul is saying here. As Paul is writing to the Corinthian church, he is writing to them here, especially in chapter 3 particularly, about being ministers of the new covenant. We who are in Christ, who are part of God's people, who are part of his church, we participate and receive the benefits of a new covenant in Christ. You realize that God, throughout all of human history, from the very beginning of Genesis all the way to now, and then even in the future in Revelation, He is working with humanity through covenant. A covenant is something very important. We have to stop and think about what is it. So when we look at the biblical narrative as a whole, I think we can see an, a theme that runs throughout it of covenant. Now, that doesn't mean that that's the only theme of Scripture, and that's an error that we can get into. There is no one central theme so much as, as much as all of the Scriptures do point to Christ through various themes. And one of, the main theme, one of the main things that we can look at here that points to Christ in Scripture is all of the covenants that God has given and, in, and instilled within His people. You realize that? Think about all the different covenants that, that God has initiated with humanity and particularly with those he says are his people. There is the covenant that God makes with creation through Adam. Even in their fall, he expands the covenant that he has with his created order to say, I will redeem this in Genesis chapter. There is a covenant with Noah, right? We all know about the rainbow, right? That unfortunately, that symbol of the rainbow has now been distorted and stolen from a certain political group. 
and they do not understand what the original meaning of that is. We'll look at that here in a minute. There is a covenant with Abraham that God promised that his descendants would be multiplied and be more numerous than the stars to count. There is the covenant with Moses where God institutes the law with his people. There is the covenant with David where God says, through you, David, the Christ, the Messiah will come through your family. And then all of this culminates in what we see as called the new covenant. And Paul uses that language here in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, the new covenant. And even Jesus uses that language of the new covenant whenever he partakes with the breaking of the bread uh, at the Lord's Supper that we will participate in this morning. When we come and remember Christ at the Lord's table, we are remembering and participating in the new covenant. So what does all this mean? That's what I want. Because all of, all of these covenants, if they culminate in this covenant with Christ, there is, according to Paul here, a freedom as a guarantee of the covenant. What is God telling us here? You see, the flow of the old covenant with Israel that Paul speaks about here in verse 14 of chapter 3. He says, but their minds were hardened, for to this day, when they read the old covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. So Paul, in this verse, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 14, he references those who read the old covenant, particularly that means the old Mosaic law, and they focus on the legalism of the law, where we can only be in God's favor through works, through sacrifices, as God directs through the Levitical law. He says, in, when reading the Old Covenant that way, you are actually looking at it through a veil. I'm looking at the back of our sanctuary room here at the wonderful uh, window film that has now been placed on the windows and the doors to make it look more... I mean, I, I, there's, there's a functional reason for it. Number one, it, it diffuses the light coming through the windows and the doors. Number two, it gives us a little bit more security in this space so that people can't look up at the window and see what we've got, right? But it also... There's a re, the, the ancient traditions of, of church architecture included some windows that were stained glass and multifaceted to, to give beauty to the space. But when you look through those windows back there, there is a window film of, of beautiful uh, design and shapes and lights. But can you see clearly through that? Paul here is speaking about when we look at the old covenants, the old covenant of, of the Mosaic law, many will read that with a veil. They cannot see clearly what God is doing in the Old Testament covenants. You see, the flaw of the Old Covenant with Israel through the Mosaic Law is that they could never keep its expectations. Now, you could say, now, wait a minute. God doesn't do flawed things. It doesn't, I didn't say that God was flawed. I said the, the flaw in the, in the covenant that God made with his people through Moses, God keeps his part of the covenant. But God's people repeatedly throughout the Old Testament, you see it time and time again, they do not obey, they cannot keep the expectations. Why is that? It's because if you go back to the very beginning of creation, God actually makes a covenant with creation in the very beginning that was broken then. You see, here's the problem. The, 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 the covenant of creation 
was God initiated the created order with all that he speaks into being. In, in the first three chapters of Genesis, God does not mention the word covenant in the first chapters of Genesis, but it's implied here that God is making a covenant with his created order. Right? Now, some will argue that instead of using the language of a covenant with Adam or a covenant with creation, instead, this language of dominion is actually a, 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 a command of administration. In other words, for mankind to have dominion over the earth, as God commands and makes this agreement with Adam, and you are to have dominion over the garden and all that I have created. Some people will argue that's not a covenant, that's a job description. You are to be the administrator of my planet. I think that's misguided. Because I think the original call to have dominion over creation, God is making a covenant with the first man and the first woman. I am creating you in this beautiful place in my image, in what is called the Imago Dei, you are to be the priest kings for all of glory, all of the world to see my glory. You are Adam and Eve, my creation made uniquely in my image so that you will reflect my glory here on this world. Do you realize that's what we were created for? Man and woman... Humanity as a whole, the original covenant that God made with us is I have given you life for one purpose, and that is to be my reflection in this world. You are to, yes, have dominion and, and be good stewards of the earth and care for the planet and care for all that I have created. But in doing that, you are serving as priest kings. You are my priests in the temple called the Garden of Eden, many scholars will call the Garden of Eden God's first temple. Amen? But what happened there? What happened? We know the narrative story. Anyone who's ever been in Sunday school or been to vacation Bible school, we know that it was, at, it was Eve's fault because she ate the apple. Now, that's wrong, too. Because Adam was right there, he could have stopped it, he did not have to participate or listen to the serpent, but Adam and Eve doubted that one question of doubt initiated sin into God's perfect paradise. So you want to know where sin comes from? God didn't create sin. We did. We did. And so we broke... Adam and Eve broke the original covenant with God. Adam and Eve broke the original covenant with God. This is the original covenant of creation. And we broke it. But even in that, God says in Genesis chapter 3, I will send, through childbirth, he says, I will send a redeemer. You will be redeemed through childbirth. The language, ladies, of women giving birth to children being you will be redeemed through childbirth doesn't mean that you'll be redeemed through the suffering that you go through through childbirth. Redemption through childbirth means that there will be a Messiah born someday. And through woman, that redemption will come. That's the original God's promise of redemption through the created covenant or the cre covenant of creation. You see where we're going? 
Now, later on in Genesis, we, we see in chapters 6 through 9 that God makes a covenant with Noah. Now, why does he, ha- why does he make a covenant with Noah? We know what happens from the time of, of, of Adam and Eve and Cain and, and Cain and Abel's first murder, right? And that tension and then leads into uh, the Tower of Babel and all of and, and all of this is crazy. Noah comes along in chapter 69, and by this time, the world is so ugly. By the time of Noah, just a few generations past Adam, the world is so ugly. Humanity is so evil that God says, I cannot stand my creation anymore. Right? In Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, God speaks, or or, or the, the text here speaks about the intention of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil continually. That's how bad the created order had become. That's how bad humanity had become. Even though God, through Adam and Eve, initiated their existence to being the priest kings of the planet. And here's what happens. You see this... This covenant, even though God makes a covenant with Adam and Eve and says, I will send a redeemer through you, by this time of Noah's time, this covenant does not promise universal salvation because what he sees here is that all of humanity is so corrupt. He says there's no hope for them. I want to wipe them out. But he looks to the heart of Noah and he sees Noah's heart as faithful and righteous. And he says, I will use you, Noah, and your family to show something even greater. And what does God do? Clearly, he, he, he wipes out all of the planet. He wipes out all of living things except those who were preserved for restoration. He, he, he holds Noah and his family. He holds just enough of the created animal life to start over again, to hold back a small remnant of life so he can make a new covenant. But this covenant of Noah is not a covenant of salvation as much as it is a covenant of preservation. I will make a covenant with all of mankind that I will make sure that you will never be wiped out again. I will preserve the human race and never wipe you out again so that someday salvation can come. Isn't that amazing? And what is it? The image of the, of the rainbow here, right? We know from childhood and Sunday school classes, if you've ever really studied the Noah story in chapter 6 through 9 of Genesis, that rainbow that God places in the sky is a sign of the covenant He makes with all of us that I will never, I will never wipe you out again. I will guarantee that, human, that the human race will continue. But why does he do this? What does a bow symbolize? We've talked about this uh, for the last few weeks here at the end of Genesis, or uh, I'm sorry, Ephesians chapter 6, the armor of God. We've talked about the language of warfare, spiritual battle. The bow is a weapon of war. And God setting the rainbow in the sky is saying, I am laying down my bow of war that I can righteously come against humanity with. That's what that rainbow implies. God is saying, through this new covenant with Noah, I am laying down my right 
to destroy you. And I will promise that you will always live because I love you enough to redeem you. Now, after the Noah covenant, we come to this covenant with Abraham, right? In Genesis chapters 15 through 17, we see God making a covenant with Abraham. Now, it's interesting, when we're talking about a covenant, we have to remember that a covenant is always in agreement between two parties. Abraham's covenant is a unique covenant in that Abraham doesn't necessarily come to this covenant willingly or initiating it at all. God initiates a call to Abraham, I want you to do this. Abraham doesn't look for this. He doesn't seek this out. <laughs> right? Abraham's he's got a good life in the land of Ur. He's, he's, he's prosperous, he's wealthy, his family's going great. No, his, his dad loves him, his, his family loves him, you know, and he's doing fine. And what does God do? He stirs up Abraham's life and says, okay, Abraham, you're leaving home and you're going over here. Right? Abraham doesn't initiate this. Abraham doesn't seek out God in this covenant, not at all. God, this, the, the Abrahamic covenant begins as a covenant of calling. God choosing Abraham. Now, the fundamental elements of this covenant with Abraham are threefold. We have the covenant of offspring, right? God makes a promise with Abraham that, there will be, that you will be multiplied and there will be many people born. But particularly, he says, there will be an offspring singular who will eventually come through your line, Abraham. Guess who that is? Jesus Christ. There is also a promise in the Abrahamic covenant of land, the promised land of milk and honey. And then there is the promise of blessing. I will bless your family and your generations after you to be my people. And all of the world will see my blessing on you. Amen? Now this, this is an interesting thing because this, this promise of offspring is fulfilled in Jesus Christ through the new covenant, right? Because all of these covenants of old that, that God initiates with his people are always broken with disobedient people. The covenant with Adam and Eve was a covenant that God made with the first man and the first woman, and as long as they obeyed, everything was wonderful. But disobedience broke the covenant. Not on God's part, but on man's part. In Noah's covenant, that, that covenant with Noah was the result of disobedience from all of the human, human race to the point that they were so vile and so corrupt, God said, I can't deal with this anymore. And even the promise to Abraham, was Abraham faithful to his covenant with God? Right? Was Abraham faithful? No. When we read about Abraham, I mean, he, he gives his wife to the Egyptian Pharaoh and says, she's my sister. Now that's pretty corrupt. Amen? But look at this. The offspring of Abraham all disobeyed and broke the covenant. But this offspring of Abraham, Jesus Christ, is the true son of Abraham because he was obedient. You see that? Now we go on in, in the Old Testament narrative and we come to the Mosaic books of law. God making a covenant with Israel through the Mosaic law. 
Now, this is an interesting thing. Now, 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 the Mosaic Covenant here is too complicated to deal with today. Okay. I mean, we could preach an entire, probably five years worth of sermons through just the Mosaic Law. Okay. But why does God initiate this promise with the nation of Israel? I mean, there's a lot going on here. Right? As God initiates the covenant with Abraham, he initiates this, ish, this practice of circumcision, and that carries through into the Mosaic law, right? Part, one of the key things of the Mosaic law is circumcision as a physical sign that, they, that we belong to God through the law. But that circumcision is actually fulfilled in the heart of God's people in the new covenant. If, if our hearts are circumcised, then we belong to God. The sacrifices that are required in the old Mosaic covenant, the sacrifices required to, to buy atonement of our sins, to cover the sin uh, so that God would be appeased, those sacrifices of the old Mosaic covenant, those are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And we no longer have to go to the temple because Jesus Christ pours out His love upon us and the Holy Spirit indwells us. And we as God's people become the true temple where God dwells. Lastly, this law that is written on the tablets of stone as Moses comes down from Mount Sinai with God's law written down on stone. That law written on stone is now written in our hearts. That's what the prophet Jeremiah said in Jeremiah 31. All of these covenants that God is making eventually will be fulfilled in a new covenant where God's law is written on our heart. Why is, what, what's the significance of that? It's that we no longer obey the law of God out of obligation because it's written in stone in a rock somewhere. We obey God's law because our hearts are changed and softened and made new in Christ, and we willingly obey. Amen? Because God has made us new in Christ, and we can obey through the power of Christ. This last covenant, before we get to the new covenant, the, the, the covenant with David, wow, how powerful is that? When you read First and Second Samuel and read all of the history of the nation of Israel as they initiate the monarchy of, of Israel through Saul first, who clearly fell from grace, and now David is made king, God anoints him, right, in Second Samuel chapter 7. This Davidic king is the true son of God. David represents not only this priest-king idea that Adam and Eve failed in, right? But David becomes, he becomes the heir by which both the Lord Jesus Christ and Jesus as the priest in the order of Melchizedek comes. You remember back in Genesis where I said Adam and Eve were created as priest-kings? Guess what? God through David says, okay, now I'm getting ready to really show you how this is coming about. Through you, David, will the royal line of Jesus Christ come. Amen? See, Jesus is this true son of David. As well as Jesus was the true son of Abraham, he was the true son of David, a priest king, and the Lord of all the world as God originally designed. Amen? So what does this look like? 
You see, uh, what we've got going on here is that there's some tension between the old covenants and the new covenants. Right? The Old Testament covenant, or the Old Testament covenants, I should say, they were fulfilled in Jesus Christ. But you've got two things going on here. At the same, on one hand, the Old Testament covenants were leading to and being fulfilled in a new covenant in Christ. So on one hand, you've got a continuity there. But then, more importantly, I think, the new covenant in Christ is called new for the very purpose that it breaks all of the old covenants not tossing them away, but breaks the connection of the old covenants to initiate something so radically new through Christ that none of the Old Testament covenants could even come close to what Jesus Christ fulfills in them. That's why Paul uses the language here in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 of the new covenant. Because in verse 14 he says, when you read the old covenant, your, your heart is so hardened and covered by a veil that you can't see clearly what's going on. Verse 15, yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, in verse 16, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And so in this new covenant of Jesus Christ, men and women, we have freedom. The Old Testament covenants were guarantees of God's protection and His love for all of humankind. But the new covenant in Christ gives us more freedom as God's people than we ever could ever have in the Old Testament promises. Now, does that mean that we in Christ can go out and do whatever we want because we are God's children, we are born again in Christ, we're made new in Christ, we're new men and women in Christ, and we now have freedom in Christ to do whatever we want because we're always going to be forgiven? Mm, No. We're going to fail. We're still living in this world. See, the new covenant of Christ is a both and. It's an already not yet covenant. Have you ever heard that language? It's an already not yet. The new covenant of Christ pays the final price due for our sin. Because none of the other covenants could fully satisfy the debt necessary for our sin. They were only foreshadowings of what Christ would do. And if Christ has paid the price for our sin, and through Christ, God's law is written on our hearts, as Jeremiah says... We have the freedom that only God can give us to no longer be bound by sin. That's what this freedom means. We are no longer slaves to sin. We are no longer bound by the penalties of death that sin brings us. And so this freedom in Christ makes us slaves to Christ, as we spoke about in Ephesians chapter 6. We are slaves to Christ, which gives us more freedom than we could have ever had as slaves of sin. Because no longer does our sin control us. No longer does our sin separate us from the presence of God. No longer are we condemned with no hope. The freedom in Christ means that we have hope beyond hope. Amen. That's what this freedom means. 
We now have the freedom to see the truth of what God has been doing throughout all of human history. And we are privileged to be a part of living in this, this, this age of grace that the Old Testament prophets did not get to partake in. The Old Testament folks, they looked through faith to the coming Messiah, but we now are privileged to live in this age of grace where grace has been now poured out upon us and that we all now receive the Holy Spirit at the moment of salvation because as we see in verse 17, now the Lord is the Spirit and where the Spirit of the Lord is there is freedom. In the Old Testament covenants, there were only a select few who received God's Spirit. Only the prophets and certain leaders and certain kings received the Spirit as God chose them. But now through Christ, as the veil of darkness is lifted from our eyes and from our souls, we now receive the Spirit of Jesus Christ, the Spirit of God Himself, through the Holy Spirit, and through that we now have freedom to participate in God's loving embrace. That's freedom. Amen? Yes. We can get charismatic in here if you want. It's all right. Amen? Yes. All right. So what do we do with this? What do we do with this? Folks, here is my challenge to us all. I don't know. I mean, if you're a Christian in this room, I hope that the words of God resonate in your souls today. In a way that you say, I don't get it, but now I understand it. God has allowed me to experience what He is telling me today. <laughs> As Bill has been teaching us on Sunday mornings about praise. Right? But if you're in this room and you do not know this Jesus Christ we're talking about, everything that was just said probably just sounds like gibberish in Greek to you. What does that mean? I would argue that if you do not... clear, well, I don't say you have to have this... PhD understanding of God's word if you're a Christian. But if, if, even, if, even if you just get a sense of, okay, God, I get it. I believe you. I sense a peace here in what you're telling me. Then the spirit is in you. But if you are just, I mean, if, if you're hearing God's word and you're just unsettled, I don't get it. That's just foreign to me. That's because you don't have the freedom of the spirit of Christ here. That only comes through God calling us to salvation and us embracing that and believing that God did send His Son and that our sins are atoned for and that we can be forgiven and God does forgive. Once we embrace that with faith, then and only then do we understand because the Holy Spirit says, okay, now the covenant is between us both. God the Father and the redeemed in Christ are now in a new covenant together. Amen. And so this morning, as we come together at the Lord's table, this is a time that I want us to ponder this new covenant in Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 speaks of our, our approach here to the Lord's table. In verse 17 of 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says to the Corinthian church, 
But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Paul here introducing this section of this text is speaking about there are true Christians and there are not true Christians. But through the divisions and the tension in the church, you're going to see who are the false Christians. You're also going to see who are the true Christians. The ones who initiate the divisions and who initiate the trouble in the church are the ones who are not genuine Christians. Can we say an amen to that? The ones who stay above the division and stay above the foolishness are the ones that are revealed to be the true Christians. Verse 20, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. Folks, if we come to the Lord's table with an attitude of selfishness, I'm here for me and me alone, verse 20 of 1 Corinthians chapter 11 condemns that. We do not come here trying to get my blessing from Christ. We do not come here seeking out my happiness. We come here in a community of believers at the Lord's table. This is why we call it communion. We come together as God's children, as the body of Christ. 